Welcome to the Rat Race Revolution podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Paul Tioto, and we created this podcast with the intention of letting you know that you can go after your dreams. So if you're stuck in some sort of a mundane life that is not consistent with your heart and your soul, we are bringing guests that will show you and tell you that you can go after your dreams. And I'm Brent Collier, another co-host, also joined by Michael Henry behind the scenes in the background, helping us produce this amazing podcast where we share our own personal experience of the hero's journey, the struggles that we've faced, and the challenges that we've overcome to live a life full of passion and purpose. We want to encourage you to do the same, to travel, to see the world, to live your best life, and hopefully by providing you with some amazing guests and interviews, we can encourage you to do the same. So thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and we're also going to, of course, have some wellness tips on yoga and meditation and dealing with anxiety, dealing with lower back pain. So there'll be lots of fun tips for all you wellness professionals out there. Have a beautiful day. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Rat Race Rebellion podcast. I am your host for this episode, Paul T. Odo, and I am super excited to bring our friend Kai Mata. Kai is an entrepreneur and also an amazing singer-songwriter, originally from Indonesia, then she moved to America, then she moved back to Indonesia, and now she lives here in Bali. And Kai is also one of Indonesia's first openly LGBTQ plus people. Welcome, Kai. Thank you very much for having me on the Rat Race Rebellion. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, I'm really excited. We were talking before the episode just uh, how you're going to help educate me. I was feeling really guilty about some of my ignorance about what it is to be LGBTQ and plus. And I was like, I don't understand the last three. And I was feeling shame about that. And you actually made me feel really good because you're like, no, you're just, you just need to know more information. And so I'm really excited to have you kind of educate me and educate all of our listeners um, about your life. No, I think it's something that we learn more about every day in terms of who we are, who other people are, and how we want to show up in the world. So I'm glad to be here. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. So um, the, the whole intention of this podcast is to bring people on to talk about how they've overcome adversity, how they were living a life that was inconsistent with their authentic self, mm -hmm. and how they had to take a leap of faith to be truly themselves. And I, as a yoga teacher and musician, I understand what that leap of faith is like, just to say, you know what, I want to be a musician. And yeah. how the world sometimes says, eh, that's, that's riskier, that's scary, or whatever. Um, and then also, um, for you to talk about your experience uh, coming out into the world and being your authentic self uh, with your sexuality as well. Of course, oh, I'm happy to share all of this. Amazing, so let's start from the beginning. You were born in Indonesia, correct? So, I am of an ethnic background that is Chinese-Indonesian. Okay. My ancestors moved from China to Indonesia in the late, 18th, uh, late 1800s. Cool. So they've been here for maybe six generations. Um, as an ethnic minority, we've faced persecution mm. and a lot of discrimination. 
which has led me, and the reason why I have an American accent when I speak is because my family fled to the United States uh, due to political unrest in the 1990s, in the late 1990s. So that is where I grew up, um, in Los Angeles, in the Valley. And what kind of set my foundations of my identity when I was growing up. However, that changed over time because I moved back to Indonesia once my family felt it was safe enough when I was 14. And I attended international school here. I saw the stark contrast between the way life was lived in the US compared to the way life was lived in Indonesia. Yeah. And also got to see the extreme ends of poverty and then utmost privilege. Yeah. And that, that was such a contrast that really forced me to look into my life and what I wanted to become for myself and for others. Yeah. So, so when you look back at your childhood growing up um, in the valley in Los Angeles, do you, did you enjoy living there? Did it feel like home at the time? Or yeah. Did, yeah. I, my parents never told me much about our background. I never knew why we lived there until I was an adult. Yeah. And so when I think of how I grew up, I grew up as a first-generation American. I was living in a suburbs with my brother. We had two cars, two parents that had two jobs. It was the nuclear family. Yeah. Um, and that felt like home, and it felt like what I knew. It was the only thing I knew. Yeah. We would visit Indonesia every summer, um, but that felt like a vacation. It felt like a foreign land. It was only until I transitioned back into Indonesia when I was a teenager, which was filled with a lot of conflict and a sense of culture shock, that over the years I realized that this is part of my identity that was stripped away due to the circumstances of discrimination. Hmm. That's beautiful. Um, so when you move back uh, from having spent most of your childhood in Los Angeles, moving to a big metropolis, mm -hmm. like you moved to Jakarta. Yes. Yes, yeah, so you moved to Jakarta, which those of you who've never been to Jakarta, it's, it's like a New York City. It's, it's very big. Lots congested. Of, yeah, congested, crowded um, place. Um, how was that transition for you as a 14-year-old girl? Yeah. Yeah. It was shocking. I remember being so confused as to my identity. I was Indonesian, but I didn't feel Indonesian at the time. I went to a very privileged school in which a lot of my peers were people with families of successful backgrounds. Yet, right next to our school were sheet metal shacks called the kampung, which is basically makeshift housing for the lower socioeconomic people in this country. And that was an eye-opener. I think in the US, it was so easy for me to feel sheltered in mm. the suburbs that I didn't realize what, how other people lived. It opened my eyes to newer perspectives, especially since my school was filled with people of hundreds of different nationalities. And almost everyone was bilingual or trilingual. And that just opened me up to a world which I didn't have any awareness of prior. Yeah. And how many languages do you speak now? Two. 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 Bahasa and English? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, 
did you feel like you were able to make friends quickly uh, when you moved to Jakarta or did it take some time or how did you feel those first couple years? Was it? I was hesitant. Yeah. For the first year, it was hard to make friends because I myself was resentful of my family for moving. Mm. I thought it was a choice made upon me. And when you're 14, you think that you can do anything and you think that your opinion is the one that matters. And yeah. I realized it, it wasn't. Um, I'm so grateful now that I have perspective. However, that initial move was so difficult. I felt like so much of my identity, which at the time was American, was stripped away from me. Yeah. Little did I know it was stripped away from me to reveal my true identity as an Indonesian. Wow, that's beautiful. So after getting a little bit more acclimated to living in Jakarta and, and finding some of your more Indonesian roots, did you feel um, as if your whole family has roots in Indonesia, but also you, maybe perhaps you still have some of the Chinese roots as well too? None of us speak Mandarin. Uh -huh. uh, it was banned in the 1960s to speak Mandarin or to have a name that sounded Chinese. Whoa. So my grandfather had to change his last name. Uh, and that's why he and his siblings all have different surnames. Wow. So it was kind of like an ethnic purge and cleansing in terms of we had to strip away our identities as Chinese, even though all of us have lived in Indonesia and all my ancestors up to six generations were born here, but that was forced upon us to let go of that in terms for what they said was assimilation. Hmm. And then when you came back and, and you started growing into your own voice as a woman, did you, did you feel because of everything that you had gone through, this desire to, to be an artist? Like, did you start playing music or did you start writing poetry or what, what was kind of the, the spark that lit the, um, the artist flame inside Good of question. you? Good question. Yeah, yeah. I would say from an early age, songwriting has always been my modality to try to explore my emotional landscape, to understand how I feel, and more importantly, to figure out how to share it with others in a way that they not only understand, but can hear and feel themselves. I think that is the way I unconsciously decided was my method to connect with others. Yeah. To realize the emotional impact one can have through music, it's kind of, as you must know, a bond of empathy that's created. It's like a link. Um, so throughout all of this, from an early age all the way until dealing with transitioning into Indonesia and the wide world that the wild world and such a shift in perspective that pushed me more to utilize that I had to utilize music as a tool in order to process yeah I, I can honestly say as a musician that music saved my life going through some really hard times in my my mid to late 20s where the only thing that I could do to feel better was just to play my guitar mm -hmm. and just uh, the way that you're able to express yourself through the instrument. And yeah. I don't even sing. Um, and, and go into like that meditative transcendent state. It's a, it's a lifesaver. And, and in, in yoga, they say that um, the more and more we accumulate dukkha, dukkha is um, basically it's kind of like stress, but it's a feeling of being squeezed or mm. shrunken. And it happens when we accumulate fear or anger or envy or just 
any type of darkness. And it sounds like through no fault of your own, you, you had all of this stuff that, that, that had been pushed onto you and, and, and you were squeezed into this box. And then this artist inside of you just really had this desire to express and, and to break free from that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So did you start writing in high school? Did you wait till after high school? Did, did you start with the guitar, with the piano? Mm. How'd you start? Um, as a true Asian, I was put onto piano at the age of four. <laughs> uh, and as a very stubborn person, I threw a tantrum after a year. I said, I cannot reach the pedals, mother and father. <laughs> Please get me a piano in which I can use the pedals. If not, I cannot utilize this instrument to its correct capacity. Yeah. And they said, no, that's ridiculous. Just wait until you grow up. And I said, then I'm not playing piano anymore. Yeah. And did you, and then what happened? Did you start playing later or what happened? So did, did, did they <coughs> give you the, the, the boxes or what did you do? I stopped the piano at the age of five um, and somehow still ended up writing songs throughout elementary school as a child and continuing on forward. I picked up a guitar at around nine mm. and felt that was something I could stick with. I took lessons a little bit, but then I, me being me, I was just like, no, I'm going to learn on my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my own time and the way I want to, even if it's improper technique, I will make it in the way I want to. Yeah, that's exactly the way that I learned. I just kept playing. I, I've had two guitar lessons, but I can't read music. My technique, any teacher would be like, oh, this guy's technique is terrible. And aren't you in like drop C? Yeah, drop <laughs> C, open G, a lot of the tunings that I play around yeah. with. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, you just I just kept listening to the stuff that I liked. And I think for, for me, at least, when, when it was an, an opportunity to play music in school, I was like, well, I don't really like the music that they're offering. If they were offering, like, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, like, then I would have been mm -hmm. uh, really excited to play guitar. But, um, yes, yeah, so that's why I learned myself just in my bedroom, which is probably how you taught yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. YouTube taught me. Yeah. I grew up with the age of YouTube at my fingertips and tutorials online. So I, We're in an age where we have so many resources. Yeah. It's just us wanting to actively choose to seek them out because they're not going to come to us. Nothing will just come to us mm -hmm. unless we enter a program in which has a strict regimen that forces us to learn. Yeah. But I think what is more beautiful is when we feel so committed to what we want to do and passionate about it that we seek that information out and initiate the process of learning. Yeah, yeah that's, that's so true. Now, was there a moment in your life when you said to yourself, I don't want music to be just a hobby for me. I want it to be something that I, that I pursue professionally. And was there resistance in your own heart? I know, at least for me, there was. Um, was there resistance to that? Was there self-doubt that crept in? Was there, what was there? Ever since I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to be a musician. Yeah. I was headstrong about it. And I think my parents, especially my father, was like, then what's your backup plan? That was the, always the thing. Of course. Of what course. is your backup plan? And when I wanted to pursue it professionally was in between high school and university. I said, mom, dad, I want to take a gap year yeah. to write music. I'm not in the place where I feel like I will gain the most I could out of higher level education. I want a year. And they said, no. 
Um, so I went to university as a double major in psychology and political science and had a valiant effort, did not graduate. I left after a valiant 10 weeks. And I said, no, I'm gonna do this. Whether or not it's your choice, it's actually mine. Yeah. I will decide whether or not I succeed or fail. And if I fail, that's fine because my backup plan is university. Yeah, and you're choosing your life. It's like you're empowering yourself to do what you really want to do. Right. Yeah, as, in like, as an adult, probably one of the first decisions you made as a woman, not right. as somebody's daughter. Yeah, I was 18 and I took a leap of faith and decided to close that chapter of academic education, which was expected by my family yeah. and expected by society. And I'm very glad I did. But it hasn't been easy, right? I think it's been easier because it's a choice on my hand. That's, that's a great answer. I'm responsible for what's happened. I can't blame anyone else but myself. I'm accountable, and thus it's easier. Yeah. Because I feel like I have a direct hand in my destiny. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Yeah. But I feel empowered rather than the choice was made for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I'm so glad that you're not a psychologist <laughs> and that you're sitting here talking to me as a musician. Yeah. And how do you feel about that? <laughs> I, I, oh, I feel seeing you and, and having, knowing you now for, for three years, I've, I've known you for three years, I just feel like you're doing exactly what you need to be doing and you know who you are. And at the age of 23, I hope or I wish that I was as grounded in my sense of self as you are. And I think you're an inspiration to a lot of women and a lot of people. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. I think you are as well. Thank you. Uh, I did not really have the courage to go after what I wanted until I was like 26, 27. And then at that time, I still had a lot of stuff that I had to, to deal with that I hadn't dealt with. So um, it's, it's really inspiring to see that you, you know who you are you know what you want, and you're going after it in, in a way that's inspiring. It takes a lot of work. As you know, it takes a lot of work, and it's continuous work. It doesn't stop. We always need to figure out more layers of who we are that won't ever change. Um, however, it's a lot more meaningful when we feel like we're the ones behind that change Yeah. rather than that change is being imposed on us. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? That's beautiful. So to people who are considering a life as an artist, can you talk about what are the good parts of being a musician? And then what are some of the down and dirty parts that be, they don't share on Instagram, that they don't share on, on YouTube? Like, you know, because it, it, like you said, it, it requires a tremendous amount of work. And there's a lot of like little things behind the scenes that go into like truly being a professional mm -hmm. versus just a person who plays music as a hobby. Yeah. And um, yeah, kind of share like how great it is and then how sometimes it's really challenging. I would say that the first key is that you have to be everything in the beginning because you're at ground zero and you're the one that creates all the momentum. No one's going to hand a record contract to you. That doesn't happen. Yeah, at all. At yeah. all. Yeah. And thus, as a musician, my roles are I 
started off as also my manager and my content creator and my promotion and my accountants. I was everything. And it took me being everything to showcase that I believed in myself first and then other people started believing in me and wanting to collaborate. I would say that a lot of my life is filled as a musician, making sure that not only I'm creating art, but it's art that I can also figure out how to get it out to other people. I think that art is much more beautiful when it's shared. And that's where people freeze. I think there's a hard, I guess a hard, there's a roadblock we have to face as musicians in which we're passionate about our art. It's something that we believe heals us and feels so fulfilling. And I think a lot of us struggle with this idea that can our passion and something we think is our love and our muse be also something we can make money off of? And my thought is yes, we need to make money. We need to be able to feed ourselves in order to continue to produce. Yeah. Money is not everything, however, it is security. And completely ignoring the money side of it is something that I think a lot of artists do because they're worried that it's going to purify Or that they're, they're a sellout. Or they're a sellout, exactly, yeah. Right, I'm an independent artist. I can only do what I do because money pays the bills. It puts food on the table. It allows me to pay my electricity bills. It gives people jobs. And that's just because I make sure to value it monetarily and what my time is worth and what I know I bring to the table. Do you think that that was something that was instilled um, with your family? No. No, not no. at all. No. no. But maybe thinking about business, thinking uh, thinking as a businesswoman. Right. Was that because because some people that are artists grew up in families uh, where their parents had no idea about anything financially, and and you grew up with um, a certain degree of not pr maybe privilege or whatever you want to call it. You grew up in a in a professional home, correct? To a certain extent, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so perhaps there was not necessarily that, that barrier to thinking of yourself as an entrepreneur as well as an artist. Um, my family, I think they instilled the idea that you work for what you accomplish. Yeah. And for better or for worse, it was very goal-oriented in my family. Um, and that made me realize I had to objectively create goals. Yeah. Like, what, what does success mean for me? How can I accomplish it? What are the steps to get there? And I had to learn to do so, because if not, I would panic and be like, okay, I want to be a professional musician, and then not know how to accomplish that. But the, it's baby steps to, get, to move forward and to be propelled into the direction I want to go into. Yeah, um, yeah so less so I think my family influenced me. They wanted me just to get a stable job that requires a university degree, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think for me, it was this tenacity where I have to make this work. Yeah. Because it's on me. And I want it to work, and I will get what I want. It's like you're completely just really taking responsibility for your own life and taking responsibility for your career. And I love the fact you're like, you know what, if I fail, at least I'm doing something that I want and I can pick myself back up and I can do something else. And I fail because of myself. Yes. Yeah. Better to fail doing something that you love versus 
something that somebody else is telling you to do. Right. Yeah. And there's no such thing as failure. As long as you fail with a good attitude and you learn, then you move forward. Like, you know? Well, I've, yeah. My belief is it's only failure if the story ends there. Yeah. However, you still have a life. You still have a rising action. Yeah. We still have time. That's great. So what would you say... Um, some of the roadblocks that you encountered your first couple of years as a, as a musician in terms of you know, finding your voice and getting your work out there and, and, and booking gigs, like what, what, would you, what, what would a piece of advice be to some, you it's like three years ago? Oh, what would you say? Just do it. Start. Don't hesitate. Don't try to wait until your work is professionally mastered or anything. Start now. Yeah. Because uh, I think, for me, what kept me tethered was this idea that I wasn't ready. I wasn't good enough yet. But I'm not going to get good enough unless I kick myself and move forward. I love that. It's equal parts. Uh, I like to say as a yoga teacher, it's equal parts self-love and self-respect. The self-love is I love myself, I'm enough, and self-respect is the person that kicks you in the butt right kicks you forward yeah and I think it's you got to have both of those you know equal parts like I want to get better every day and I love myself yeah you know yeah. I like that yeah. self-love and self-respect yeah it's parts. like self-love is a is a very feminine energy I am enough I can just be and self-respect is a masculine energy like I do I, I grow I move forward and I think the having the balance between the two is is a great way to, to live our lives, you know? And I think sometimes people focus too much on the self-love. I'm, I'm perfect, I'm enough, I'm enough. Well, yeah, but you can push yourself a little more. Or the self-respect, like, take it easy, you know? It's like, if you're too much in self-respect, then you need to go a little bit easier on yourself. And you're too much in the self-love, you need to be a little bit harder on yourself. Of course, it's finding that equilibrium. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, so now we'll transition to what it was like. Um, when did you know that you were a lesbian? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> from an early age, I've had a strong sense of knowing that I would love who I loved regardless of their gender. Hmm. That that wasn't something that played an impactful role in my decision for who I felt connected to and attracted to, both emotionally, intellectually, romantically, physically. Um, when I was forced to come out was when I was 17, when I had to come out personally in life. I wasn't ready at that time. Mm. I didn't have the language or the foundations for myself to be able to elaborate to other people in a way that felt true, in a way that felt comfortable, and in a way that felt accurate to who I was yeah and basically I was outed at the age of 17 um, my I fell in love with my best friend she was a female and we were so close um, and when she found out I felt so powerless because I wasn't the one to say it I felt stripped of the chance to say it and that was heartbreaking to me. It just felt so vulnerable and like I could not stand up. If I would say I have one regret in life and it's the fact that I didn't say it to her myself. I then came out publicly 
last year in which it tied into my music career, which was scary in a very different sense, in which I knew that I would never be able to work with mainstream Indonesian record labels or companies, or it would be a lot harder for them to feel my value because of the risk they would take to carry on someone who now has some sort of political agenda, despite the fact that I think it's ridiculous we politicize just wanting to be able to love. So you just want to be yourself. Right. Yeah. I just want to love someone and for that love to be considered normal. Yeah. Not a sin, not something that should mandate me go to conversion therapy, and not something that I should be stoned for. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's really, um, I think the world is moving forward, unfortunately not as fast as it needs to. We move forward and backward because we're continuously in conflict. Yeah. It's never an easy ride. And I think that is something that is fun in so many regards, because if it was easy, we'd just be complacent. Yeah. However, it's so hard to come to terms with it when I see people struggle. Yeah. When people who don't have the privileges I do, like having an accepting family, feel they have to hide who they are in fear that they will never be accepted and will be in harm's way if they do try to showcase their true selves. Yeah. Have, have you ever considered um, moving to a part of the world where being openly gay is, is more acceptable? I think of it, and this is a question I'm asked so often, is why am I here in a country that has continuously shown that people like me are not accepted? Um, Indonesia has tried to criminalize us in February this year, they tried to release a new law that would make it mandatory for neighbors and family members to report anyone in their family that was LGBTQ plus to the government for conversion therapy. Um, and I panicked when I heard that because here I am, almost all my content on the internet is somehow linked to my sexual orientation or speaking up about my love. My music is about that. So I was like, I've given the government evidence to send me to conversion therapy. And it made me panic. It made me like, do I flee? Do I apply for asylum to another country uh, as a rainbow refugee? And it dawned on me that me leaving would be giving Indonesia or these bigots and this vitriol that's being spewed my way, it'd be giving them the power to once again strip away my identity as an Indonesian. Going back to the fact that this country has tried to kick me out, me and my ancestors out, for our ethnic origins. And here they are trying again to do so for my sexual orientation. So this is me saying, no, I'm staying here because this is my country and my land. It's worked once where you've kicked me out, but I'm here and I'm here for good. That you just sent goosebumps through my entire body and you just made me choke up a little bit. Um, yeah, you, um, you're a very brave woman and I know that there are a lot of people that live here that would stand right next to you in this, in you um, just being yourself. Thank you. And um, 
And it just is, it's just such an honor to be uh, interviewing somebody who is demonstrating true courage, like real courage. Like, um, yeah, what you're doing is you're going to help a lot of people. You already are. And I think you're going to continue to help so many more. And um, I think it is, like you said, it's two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. And, and, and I believe that the rest of the world will continue to come around more. And I think in order to learn to love a gay person, a lesbian person, a transgender person, all you have to do is get to know one. Right. That's it. But it's so easy to demonize a community when you don't have a face to put with it. It yeah. is so easy to claim that we are sins and animals and complete trash when you don't put a face and a picture and a soul behind it. And the idea that, yeah, I like women. There's so many other aspects about myself and that's one facet of my identity. And for me, it's an important part of my identity. However, it's not the only thing I am. Not at all. And when I am narrowed into that, whether it be for being Chinese Indonesian or being gay, then it strips away all other parts of humanity. And I'm here to show the whole human. Yeah. That's beautiful. So how can, how can other people continue to support you and other men and women in countries like Indonesia that, that need to become more tolerant? Like, what, what can I do? Because right now I'm so moved by what you're saying, and at the same time I feel so powerless, and also I feel, like we mentioned before, a little bit ashamed of my own ignorance. And, and what, what would you say someone like me, something that I can do to support someone like you? Or some, like Michael, what, what, what can Michael and I do to support someone like you? I think a big part of it is just education and trying to create the most inclusive environment, which yeah. you must already know is the key when you're leading people through times of vulnerability when people attend yoga retreats and workshops. It's just continuing to educate yourself and ask questions and being accepting and curious because... I think a lot of times people are afraid to ask questions because they don't want to feel like they're offending someone. Yeah. I can tell the difference when someone's asking about my sexual orientation when it's something that's actually respectful because they're rooted in curiosity or something that is nosy almost as if they are fetishizing me for being a woman who likes women, which is oftentimes overtly sexualized in yeah. which my identity is then reduced to being an object for usually sexual pleasure in the fantasies of straight men. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the idea of what a lesbian is, like a lot of men get that from like porn or something. Right, the like amount of times. That's nothing yeah. to do with it, yeah. The amount of times uh, people ask my partner and I if we're down for a threesome is just way too often. It's almost <laughs> commonplace. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's very lovely you think that we would be down. Yeah. And it's just so ignorant. Uh, but you know what? I, I might have been that ignorant 15 years ago. Exactly. You, know, you live in L.A. for 10 years, and all of a sudden, being gay and being a lesbian or being bisexual is very normal, and you just get really comfortable around it. But I, I, I totally agree with you. At the age of 25, 26 years old, when I first moved to Los Angeles, 
and I started being around a lot of gay men, at first I was uncomfortable. But slowly but surely, all of that just kind of, the, the ignorance gets dissolved because you, you see people and they're, and they're just people. They're familiarized. Yeah. And, and, and some of the healthiest marriages I have seen to this day are marriages between two men in Los Angeles that have been together for 15, 20 years. I, I've seen that and I've seen healthy beautiful positive relationships and and how i as a man can learn how to be a better husband to my own wife by watching two gay men and yeah. there's no difference you know and it's really um yeah we we just i think we all just need to continue to shed light on this ignorance and then also right now i think you mentioned it People are so afraid of offending other people because everyone is really sensitive right now, particularly in America. And it's like, then they don't ask questions because they're afraid of like saying the wrong thing and then getting like canceled right. or getting like destroyed on, on like in the internet for like asking a question where you might be clumsy and mm -hmm. ignorant. Um, and, and I see that with, um, issues of sexuality and also issues with race and like the Black Lives Matter movement. People are afraid to ask questions because they're like, wait, well, this doesn't make sense to me. And then they might ask it in a way that's clumsy. And then the mob on social media will just go after them. So I think it's really good that you, that you mentioned that, like that sometimes people are nervous and they're trying to ask a question and they want to learn and, they, and they're curious and and, and, they, and they need the freedom to not be shunned for asking questions. Yeah, I think the most important thing is figuring out someone's intent. Yes. Why are they asking this question? Yeah. Is it because they truly want to learn? Or is there um, an ulterior motive? And when I ask that question to myself in regards to someone being clumsy or maybe saying something that is kind of offensive, then I can recognize that this is just a moment in which isn't something that is negative. Yeah. And to, to jump the gun and to, for me, anyone is allowed to ask me any questions. Please reach out to me. This is not the case for everyone, but for me, I'm open. I talk about this for a living. This is something that I explain and have made it my responsibility to educate and to bring light to. So I'm happy for that for me. Yeah. There are other people where it's part of their personal lives. So it's, it's, Figuring out your audience and also figuring out who you're talking to. Yeah, and I think the amount of good that you and other people are doing, because um, I just know that rates of depression and anxiety and suicide are much higher amongst teenagers that are gay or lesbian or transgender, and, and, and I think talking about it and, and, and destigmatizing it and saying, like, yeah, you're still a normal person. And, and having someone like you to look up to is just so important right, right. now. Yeah. I never had anyone growing up in Indonesia. I felt so so alone when I was here and had no one to turn to. There was no support system in my school because it wasn't allowed to yeah. have anything. Um, and that feeling of complete isolation drove me crazy, and which is why I feel so responsible now, looking back, to hopefully make people who are in my position 
feel less alone and yeah. feel like they have a community and feel like there's someone out there who may not understand what they're going through or may not know the depths of it, but will at least accept them. Yeah. So beautiful. So beautiful. What would you say to anyone who might be struggling with their own identity and looking for a safe way to start to talk about it, to start to talk about like, hey, you know, maybe this is who I truly am and, and maybe they would, they're coming from a family that might not be accepted or a, an environment like a school or a country where it might not be accepted. Um, and again, as you can see, like I, I really want to help as much yeah. as possible. But I, I myself, I feel myself being clumsy right now. I just want to help. And then again, I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes. Um, but trying to, trying, yeah. you know what I mean? I can see the effort and that yeah. is like the most beautiful, precious thing to see right now. Thank you. I'm trying. <laughs> I just want to help you. Yeah. Like I, I want to stand there and protect, like don't throw her out of the country. Like this is... You know, I'll yeah. stand next to you. Michael, stand next to you. Like, we're here for you. Everyone. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. All the strongest men in Obud. Yes. Well, maybe we'll go down to Chango and get some real strong men. Oh, yeah? With the man buns? <laughs> yeah, yeah ex okay. exactly. Okay. Man buns, Australian accents, you know, beards. Yeah. They're so the... strong they can drive without a helmet. I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would say that the, the ways to help is really just fostering an inclusive environment. It's a lot of the times it's not the overt homophobia that really gets to people. People can tell me that they want to like kill me and like kick me out of this country. I get death threats all the time. Somehow that's easier than when I'm in a conversation with someone and uh, like an acquaintance who I know decently well starts fetishizing me and my partner. That somehow feels more offensive because that's someone I care about and they don't realize they're being ignorant. Yeah. They don't realize that's offensive, that yeah. that is demonizing me they th or demeaning me. They think that it's them showing support somehow. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with your sex life, so of course I'm cool with you. Um, and you have a kid coming in life, right? Mm -hmm. Is this public announced? Like, oh, we, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's publicly announced. You have a kid coming. Very public, yeah. I would say that... It's education. My favorite thing to do is to work with people in schools. I perform at schools and usually do talks about this in which the broadest scope is accepting people for their identity. And that's firstly making sure that we all individually accept ourselves. Once we do that, that is the foundation in which we can accept others. That's beautiful. What do we do about what, what, what do you think we could do about bullying? It's a real hot topic right now, and it's a very challenging problem to solve. I mean, we're, we've all been bullies, and we've all bullied, I think. Mm. I can say that I have definitely been the villain in people's lives, mm. um, while hoping that I was the hero in mine. So I think that if we all actually loved our individual selves, we wouldn't care about bringing other people down. I think so much of it comes from a lack of self-esteem in the individual self. And also a lack of empathy and connection. When we can think about 
the consequences of our actions and make them more tangible. That seems to be the only time we realize the effects we have. We are all very powerful individuals. We have such strong influence. And we can either choose to use that in a way that benefits us and others, or in a way that makes someone feel worthless, which then only showcases how we feel about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And I think social media, unfortunately, makes it very easy to, to, to say things to somebody on a text that you would never say to their face. It, it distances us from the weight of our words. It makes it a lot easier because it seems a lot more passive. When you're face to face with someone, it's a lot harder to say mean things. Yeah. But when you can't see the reaction and there's a distance and a time lag, it makes it a lot easier not to think about the impact we have. And I think that stems from a lot of us realizing we don't have that much power or thinking we don't have much power. Yeah. But no, we're all powerful, incredibly powerful. And if we actually realized how much power we had, we'd think twice about some of the mean things we'd say about other people. Yeah. Yeah, probably say more nice things too. Probably. Because I was thinking like, yeah, it's really, you'd never say something rude to somebody in front of their face because it's so much harder. And then sometimes it's hard to say really nice things to people's faces because it's the same, it's that vulnerability. And um, when we spend so much time just communicating through machines, we lose some of that. Mm -hmm. You know, you lose some of that like, hey, I just want to let you know, you know how much you mean to me or how much you're, um, I acknowledge your courage and whatnot. Right. And, that, and that takes courage to, to, to be openly vulnerable in both positive ways and not a negative way, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I would say, I think a lot of the times we don't realize we are bullying others. Yeah. And sometimes I may mean something in a way that I didn't intend to be offensive. However, if someone else interprets that, my thought is for me, I, I, if, if the words I say have an impact on someone in a negative light, it's a lot easier for me to change my words than for them to change their whole story of their whole traumas and all the roots that led them to feel that way. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, I would say this is an example. We were speaking about transgender people and how some people have preferred pronouns. I identify as a woman and my pronouns are she, her. I was also born a woman. So that makes it a lot easier. I also have very feminine features, like very ridiculously long hair. So you automatically assume that I'm a woman. Yeah. Um, there are some people that like the pronouns they, them. And that is not something we were taught growing up to use. However, when we utilize those terms, it means so much to people that identify as neither gender of female or male or something else. But it's quite easy for me to just change the way I speak on that. Yeah, so if somebody's asking you, like, hey, I'd, I'd prefer for you to use these terms, like, yeah, it doesn't really What's cost the deal? us right. anything. It means the world to them and very little to me. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. Yeah, that's another area, like we were talking about, where I, I feel clumsy and, and ignorant and, and wanting to just, to just um, to honor people. Anybody who is living their 
highest self, being who they are. And as long as it's not affecting other people negatively, who cares? Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. And, um, yeah, and I, I know that I personally, I'm very opinionated, and I state my opinions in a very direct and blunt manner, and sometimes that could be interpreted as bullying. Um, and I've been guilty of that myself and have, have, to, have had to backtrack and apologize, too. So I think... You're very, you're very right in terms of saying, like, we've all been bullied and we've all been the bully. And um, perhaps looking back at those moments where we were the bully and, and making amends is, is the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us. Is there anything else that you'd like to speak on? Anything else that that you have going on right now that's exciting. How, how can people uh, listen to your music? Uh, do you have a website, uh, Instagram? How do we stay in touch with you? Just find me. My name is Kaimata. I am everywhere on the in internet. Or just Google lesbian Indonesia and my photo will come up. <laughs> the number one lesbian in Indonesia. Or the only right now. Yes. There's only one. Uh, yes. It's, it's a lonely, lonely place. Let's invite some more people. Um, but yeah. Let's invite some more people to that party, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and just stay in touch. I am always looking forward to hearing from people, to hear their stories, and I am always there to listen. Cool. Thank you so, so much. You have been a wonderful guest, and you have inspired me with your courage, and um, the world needs more people like you. Thank you. You as well, Paul. Oh, thanks, Kai. This has been the Rat Race Rebellion podcast. My name is Paul Teodo, coming to you with a big, big grateful heart. Our guest, Kai, see you soon. I am your co-host, Paul Teodo. We created this podcast with the intention of really bringing awareness to the gifts that come when you travel the world. And next year in 2021, I have a bunch of events coming up. In February 2021, we have a 200-hour yoga teacher training in Bali, Indonesia. And then in June, I have two retreats, one in the south of France and one in Santorini, Greece. If you're interested in any of these experiences, you can follow me at Teodo Yoga Guitar on Instagram. Send me a message or you can visit elementsofpoweryoga.com for the teacher training. Have a beautiful day. Namaste.